0: Hi everyone, welcome back to the History in 20 podcast, hope everyone's alright given the current very strange situation we're living in, but uh, well hopefully this podcast might take your mind off it for a little while. So we're finally, at last, onto the uh, part 4 of the Plantagenets mini-series and we are covering Edward III and Richard II, so let's get straight into it because I'll probably end up going over like I did last time, but there we are. So... Who was he? Edward III. Well, he was born on the 13th of November 1312 at Windsor Castle in Berkshire. Uh, he succeeded Edward II, he was his father's eldest son, and he was coronated on the 1st of February 1327. And he was married to Philippa of Hainault, which was in like the low countries, like where Belgium, Germany, Netherlands are today. And uh, he was married they were married for almost 40 years. Uh, from the 24th of January 1328 to her death on the 15th of August 1369. And Edward is the longest reigning of the Plantagenet monarchs, and his reign was from the 25th of January 1327 to the 21st of June 1377. So, he was Edward II's oldest son, and... Obviously, it's when you examine Edward III's reign, it's typical to see why he's one of the greatest kings in English history. You have historians like David Starkey, who describes Edward as embodying the perfect contemporary image of kingship. He personified the values of his age, just like Elizabeth I did and like Elizabeth II is doing now. So his first task as king was to actually become king in the first place. So if you remember from last time, on Edward II's deposition... His wife Isabella and her lover Roger Mortimer had taken control of England and Mortimer obviously saw Edward III as a threat to his, well, illegitimate rule and obviously it's little wonder why he's got, I mean Edward III is the legitimate heir to the throne, Mortimer isn't. So by 1330, though Mortimer had got wind of conspiracy against him so he summoned Edward to Nottingham Castle where he was to interrogate him against a council. So it's very Game of Thrones like this. But uh, Edward III actually snuck a band of knights into Nottingham Castle on the night of the 19th of October 1330 via an underground tunnel. And the surprised Mortimer overpowered him and had him arrested. And he was then executed as a common criminal at Tyburn. Uh, But what happened to Isabella? Well, she was his mother and Edward spared her. So he sent her off to Berkhamstead Castle where she was entitled to a yearly pension of £3,000 for the rest of her life so edward could finally rule in his own right but it was almost three years after his coronation so unsurprisingly like last time we follow on what's the main issue plaguing edward again it's scotland so it had eluded his grandfather edward the first it humiliated his father edward the second so for edward the third war against scotland was a matter of honor and his first major victory was actually at the battle of duplin Moor, which took place or Duplin Moor if you'd rather, uh, which took place from the 10th to 11th of August, 1332. Now, if we rewind a little bit, Robert the Bruce had died in 1329 and left his infant son, David II, in charge of Scotland. So obviously this was too good an opportunity for Edward to miss because uh, obviously their king isn't there, they have military leaders because at this point David II is only five or six I believe. So, and um, obviously Edward had learned from his father's defeat against Scotland, so he opted for a different military tactic. He adopted the French or European style of crossbows, of of longbows, sorry, longbows, and uh, it actually paid off, because the majority of the Scottish army didn't even reach the English army before they were slaughtered by the archers, so the longbow was a vital weapon, and as we'll see, it was to pay dividends through Edward's reign. So militarily, Edward III's tactics relied on the enemy attacking first. So unlike at Bannockburn in 1314, when the English ran over first and attacked the Scottish and were defeated, or like when and and they allowed William Wallace to get the upper hand in uh, 1298 at Falkirk as well. So this tactic of relying on the enemy to attack first was predominantly used through Edward's reign. And just a year later, in 1333, at Hallidon Hill, just outside of Berwick, Edward again used the longbow and defeated the Scots this way. So two great victories for a young king. At this point, just three years into his full reign, I suppose. So Edward's next target, obviously, who else would it be? France. So the kingdom that had been won and lost by his ancestors since right back all that time ago in Henry II's reign. So in winter of 1337-38, there was a revolt in Flanders, which was under French territory then, not part of like Belgium. It was led by a man called Jacob van Artevelde, and his problem was that the people of Flanders survived on the business of making cloth, but in order to make cloth you needed wool and the best quality wool at the time came from England. But under French domination, Flanders was banned from trading with England. So after this, this revolt pops up and this is often regarded as one of the major possible starts of the Hundred Years' War, but I could do 20 podcasts on the Hundred Years' War if I wanted to but I won't bore you with that for the time being. So on the 26th of January, 1340, Edward III landed at Flanders and he proclaimed himself King of France, and his claim being that he was the only male descendant of Philip IV. who was his grandfather. So by early February, in order to fund a conquest into France, Edward left Flanders and returned to England, and gathered troops and reinforcements. But King Philip VI of France, who was the current King of France, had also turned his attention to the North Sea. Excuse me. So, Philip had managed to gather a fleet of just over 200 ships, and Edward had 150. So, on the 24th of June, 1340, Edward entered the Bay of Sluys, or Sluys, in northern Flanders. The French fleet was ahead of them, and they were facing the English, and they were all chained together, so it was like an impenetrable barrier. But the English ships advanced towards the French fleet, and after four hours of combat, which involved archers and foot soldiers crossing onto enemy ships... The first line of French ships was broken, but after that, obviously the French were hemmed in in the bay, the English weren't. The rest of the French ships tried to escape, but Edward's army captured all but 23 of the 213 ships. And estimates of between 16,000 and 18,000 French seamen and soldiers had lost their lives, including all of Philip VI's admirals, but uh, as ever the victory was short-lived. Because Edward had run out of money to pay the soldiers before the campaign campaign had even begun, so he had to agree uh, to a truce with the French on the fifteenth of September. Uh, and we fast forward a few years to thirteen forty six, and the Battle of Cressy, which is on the twenty sixth of August. So, England against France again, but the odds weren't actually in Edward's favour this time. They were outnumbered eight to one by the French, but Edward was victorious by using longbows again. And the French army also actually faced artillery fire from English cannons, which was another turning point in military history as a general rule because it's the first use of artillery in a European battle. So the French army fled the battlefield and they left 4,000 knights dead and huge numbers of foot soldiers dead as well. And a chronicler at the time, Jean Labelle, wrote about the Battle of Crecy and he described it as... uh, he wrote that it was found that there were nine great princes lying there, and around twelve hundred knights, and a good fifteen or sixteen thousand others, Esquires, Genoese and others, and they found only three hundred English knights dead. So that does give a scale of the victory there. It was a huge victory for Edward and a massive loss for France. Um but obviously the Old Alliance, France-Scotland, had uh was rife in this period and Philip VI had rested his hopes on David II as part of the Ald Alliance to drive Edward out of France for good. So on the 17th of October of 1346, English forces met a Scottish army at Neville's Cross just near Durham. And the Archbishop of York led the English forces in Edward's absence, he was still in France at the time, and the English forces beat David II's army and even more significantly David was actually captured and sent to London as a prisoner. And then over the next 11 months, from September 1346 onwards, Edward besieged Calais, and by mid-1347, he'd had enough. So he brought over the biggest English army of the medieval period. Uh, And after four days of relentless siege warfare, the French army surrendered on the 3rd of August 1347 and opened the gates of Calais to the English. Another territorial gain for the English, and at a pivotal moment as well, Because obviously 1347, what happens the next year? The Black Death. So I'll talk a little bit about the Black Death. I don't want to go too much into all this virus stuff with everything going on, but we have to mention it. So, uh, I mean, modern estimates now reckon about half the population of England was said to have died from bubonic plague, which is in this period known as the Black Death, and eventually returned in swathes of waves of it over the next century or two centuries or so. But Edward III didn't close England's ports, even in 1348 when plague was at its absolute worst, because for him, closing the ports would have meant isolating trade and cutting himself off from his fellow monarchs, including his own daughter Joan, who was on her way to Castile to marry Prince Pedro, who was the son to the throne of Castile, the heir to the throne of Castile. But ironically, Joan herself actually contracted plague on the journey outside Marseille, and she died. Uh, And also, closing England's ports would also have cut Edward off from his newly acquired territory of Calais, as well as the other English territories in France, like Ponthieu, Brittany, Gascony. So, in order to combat plague, and the sheer numbers of deaths from it, Edward actually introduced legislative measures. The most famous was the Statute of Labourers, which was introduced in 1351. And this aimed to reduce peasants' wages to pre-plague levels. Because during the Black Death, obviously more peasants died, there was more work for the remaining peasants to undertake. So they demanded higher wages, which a lot of the landowners at the time thought was excessive. So that was introduced to bring them back to pre-plague levels. So uh, by the time the Black Death had actually calmed down in England in the 1350s, uh, Edward again focused on France. So uh, it was, and it's this period as well that a lot of historians regard as the peak of his popularity, the early 1350s, because he was the quintessential English king. Middle English had replaced French as the primary language spoken in England. And uh, if you look at like, the Walsingham Chronicle, the English people thought that, had, that a new sun had risen because uh, of the abundance of peace in England and the glory of the victories. And one of the most notable of these victories was the Battle of Poitiers on 19th of September 1356. But it was not Edward III's victory this time, really. It was his son, Prince Edward, who's better known as the Black Prince, because of the colour of his armour, who led the troops and succeeded. And it was a massive victory for England, because the Black Prince had shown he was as competent as his father, and he was the heir to the throne, something which Edward II had failed to do, and the likes of Henry III had as well. And uh, this obviously looked really good to the English people, that their future king is going to be this successful. And Poitiers was also significant as well, because King John II of France was captured and sent to London. And Starkey again refers to Poitiers, as the climax of Edward's wars, the greatest victories England had achieved for over a century and a half. Another contemporary chronicler, Henry Knighton, also praised the Black Prince, stating that the Pope is a Frenchman, but Jesus is an Englishman. Now we shall discover who is stronger. But... Unfortunately, Edward III was never actually able to take advantage of his position and assert himself as king of France. Due to financial issues again, in 1360 he signed the Treaty of Bretigny, renouncing his claims to the French throne. So although he'd consolidated his territorial gains, a victory on the scale of Cressy or Poissier eluded Edward and his sons for the remainder of his life. Uh, As we enter the 1360s, it sees Edward unfortunately slow slow down a lot mentally and physically, So as I'd stated earlier, the victories had dried up, but a lot of his leading earls and barons had died, some due to plague, some because of old age complications. And by the early 1370s, there was serious concern for the health of both Edward III and the Black Prince. And in 1376, there was a parliament held, but Edward and the Black Prince were both too ill to attend. So the Black Prince's son, also called Edward, it gets quite confusing. He'd died in France, so there were more questions about the succession of the Plantagenet dynasty. and It was decided in the end that Richard, who was the Black Prince's second eldest son, should succeed him when he died. But the Black Prince would stay a prince forever, because on the 8th of June 1376, he died and he was only 45. So his second eldest son, Richard, was officially in line to succeed the king after his grandfather's death. So after Edward III's death, and England once again faced the prospect of a boy king, like we did with Henry III. Uh, and then the Order of the Garter, which Edward established in the early 1360s, came into fruition here because Edward made Richard II and Henry Bolingbroke, who was Richard's cousin through his uncle, John of Gaunt. John of Gaunt was the Black Prince's next eldest brother, so his second youngest brother. He made them both knights of the garter in April 1377 which meant that they would both fight together and not against one another and then eventually after a 50-year reign edward III died aged 64 and his reign like we look at it we said before it's one of the most fondly remembered and romanticized in english history so the english brute chronicle sums it up and argues that edward third was forsooth of surpassing goodness and very full of grace even by comparison with all the worthy men of the world for by his virtue and even the grace given to him by God, he surpassed and shone above his predecessors, who were themselves noble and worthy men. But despite Edward's death, the problems of succession were definitely going to plague uh, Richard for the majority of his reign, because we end up with a boy king on the throne again. So, even though, so we'll move on to Richard II then. And even though he succeeded the throne due to decisions made by Edward, and through a very legitimate bloodline, descended from his grandfather directly descended it didn't mean there was no controversy. So four of Edward III's sons who survived until manhood have fought between themselves and the families between the, for the next century really. So the Black Prince's family, John of Gaunt, Lionel and Edmund were the sons. Now gossip and rumours had suggested that John of Gaunt was the most likely to usurp Richard's reign which was why Edward had taken the initiative to make both Richard and Henry John of Gaunt's son, Knights of the Garter, so that they'd, they had to vow that they wouldn't fight against each other. Uh, <clears throat> so Richard's reign didn't get off to the ideal start, because a bit about him as a child, well, he had, when he was a kid, he had a set of dice that were loaded so that he'd always win. So if you kind of get that image in your head, this action sort of summed up his attitude throughout his reign. So obviously royal power relied on the support of the nobility, so Richard had to tread carefully in his reign but chief of these nobles was John of Gaunt so when edward III had made john, john of gaunt duke of lancaster in 1362 he'd essentially given him unchallenged power in the north of england and by 1377 by the time richard's on the throne edward's death john of gaunt had 30 castles across england and his house of lancaster had a private army of 4000 men so the sheer numbers show the amount of power that he held so, uh, even 30 years after the Black Death had ravaged Europe, so England was still feeling its impact even in the 1370s and 80s. So, Richard felt he had no other option but to introduce poll taxes, and he introduced three between 1377 and 81, where he demanded a shilling from every adult in the land, whether it was a duke, a merchant, a peasant. So, the weight of the taxation was much heavier on the peasants, obviously. A shilling's a lot more to them than it is to a duke and it triggered one of England's most famous revolts, the Peasants' Revolt. But, contrary to popular belief, the rebels didn't actually target Richard II, so instead they actually targeted the noble families around him, those families like John of Gaunt's House of Lancaster, because they were after relative taxation form, they didn't feel it was fair, which obviously it wasn't. So the peasants rose up in Essex and Kent mainly, and they were led by a man called Wat Tyler, and they marched on to London, and they pillaged the city from May to November 1381. And Richard, his mother, Henry Bolingbroke, and a few of the other nobles rushed into the Tower of London for safekeeping. But with, obviously, enormous courage at the time, Richard was only 14 years old. He actually went out to face the rebels with just a small entourage, and he met them at Mile End, where he offered them a Charter of Liberties, and then at Smithfield, and he actually approached Wat Tyler and addressed him as brother and asked why the men of Kent and Essex hadn't gone home. But unfortunately, Richard's act of diplomacy was actually undermined, really, when the Lord Mayor of London attacked and murdered Wat Tyler. But Richard quickly got the attention of the shocked rebels, uh, and he shouted, I'm your leader, follow me. And miraculously, the mob did as they were actually commanded and followed Richard out of harm's way, so that a full-scale battle couldn't erupt. But they were now leaderless, and their grip on London had obviously broken. the rebels now easily dispersed by the London militia. And all of a sudden, Richard's appearance as a man of the common people had vanished because he was now back to the manipulative teenage king that was going to haunt him for the rest of his kingship, this image of him as an arrogant leader, really, because he even went to watch the executions of some of the rebels and formally acknowledging that any sympathy that he'd shown or he'd pretended to show, which is more likely, had gone. So Richard was reluctant to give up power now that he'd tasted it, he gave his favourites in Parliament positions of high high power. And on numerous occasions, had to be reminded of his great grandfather's fate for doing the same. Obviously, his great grandfather being Edward the Second, and you look back to Edward the Second in Gaveston. There's no benefits to giving your favourites positions in Parliament and government. So the royal government was actually un- completely unlike his grandfather's, because it became a high tax, high spend affair. And the taxpayers and money, as usual, went nowhere, it was just squandered on his favourites and failed campaigns in Scotland and France, and by 1386 Parliament had had enough. So because of these failed campaigns in France, England faced a, a genuine possibility of a French invasion, so this so-called wonderful Parliament of 1386 agreed to help Richard financially and militarily if he dismissed his favourites from government. And Richard retorted by saying he wouldn't listen to Parliament, even if they wanted him to dismiss his kitchen scullion. Um, So he was just, he was a 20-year-old acting like a petulant child. So eventually Parliament threatened Richard with deposition and he finally surrendered to Parliament, which bound him to ordinances, again like Edward II. And Parliament also impeached one of his favourites, Michael de la Pole, and instituted an inquiry into royal finances and spending. Richard stormed off in anger and went on a tour of his kingdom. But Richard's tour wasn't because he had any sort of genuine interest in his subjects. It was instead an attempt to gather armed support against the nobility and to gain legal legal judgments to rescue his prerogative. But the nobility wasn't finished yet because one of the natural leaders they turned to was the Duke of Lancaster's son and Richard's cousin, Henry Bolingbroke. So ten years after the two boys had sworn never to take arms up against each other, as 20-year-old men now. Uh, tensions rose. So... Richard II and Henry Bolingbroke were obviously very different men and uh, it eventually resulted in them two meeting on the 19th of December 1387 at Radcot Bridge just outside of Oxford so the Royal Army was led by Robert de Vere and the nobles army by Henry himself and Henry won a, a resounding victory and de Vere fled into exile leaving Richard without his troops and powerless and Richard had hidden for safety in the Tower of London when he heard the news that Henry's forces had won and so there was no other option for him than to surrender. So the merciless Parliament of 1388 dismantled Richard's power completely. His friends were driven into exile, the kingdom was to be ruled by a committee of the lords, and even Richard's personal affairs were to be put into the hands of a board of guardians, as if he was either a child or insane. And the only thing Richard was left with was the official title of King of England, but that was still enough, because over the next sort of ten years... He rebuilt his power structure and in February 1388, just after his 21st birthday, he made a plausible cause to Parliament that he'd matured from a boy into a man because he'd turned 21. And he reached out for the support of his uncle and Duke of Lancaster, John of Gaunt, who actually agreed to use his influence to pacify the country. And Richard managed to rebuild his personal following and treated his former enemies with mercy. But you can't give him too much sympathy because he was still the manip- manipul- manipulative man that he'd been all those years ago in the summer of 1381. So the depth of his hatred, which although it had been stemmed for a few years, was still relatively fresh when he came back into Parliament. So when his royal uh, when uh, his royal army leader Robert de Vere died in exile in 1395, Richard arranged a funeral for him, and all the noble lords who'd fought against him were obliged to attend. And by 1397, Richard was strong enough to strike. So one by one, the lords who'd rebelled against him were either exiled or executed on highly exaggerated charges of treason. And he also surrounded Parliament with his Cheshire archers, who'd he'd gathered on his tour of England in 1387, so he'd regained his prerogative at last. But, in saying that, Richard had saved the best revenge, or what he thought was the best revenge, for the man who'd undermined and betrayed him the most, his cousin, Henry Bolingbroke. So when Henry had a quarrel with another nobleman, Thomas Mowbray, Richard ordered that the two of them should fight to the death and God would be on the just man's side. So again, he was not acting like a petulant child this time, but more like a Roman emperor in the Colosseum, asking people to fight to the death for his entertainment. But just as the two fighters were about to charge at each other, Richard threw down his staff, stopping the fight and resuming judgement to himself. And the, his final decision was that Henry was to go into exile for 10 years while Marlborough was to go into exile for the rest of his life but in while he was in exile in Paris in 1399 Henry Bolingbroke heard the news that his father John of Gaunt who was the Duke of Lancaster had died and he also heard the news that Richard had wasted absolutely no time in taking all of Lancaster's possessions and thus Henry's inheritance so this act of greed from Richard only spurred Henry on in his return to England so Although Richard still felt relatively safe in England because he thought France was on his side, his luck would definitely soon change because the Duke of Burgundy was forced out of Paris because of plague and that ultimately left Henry Bolingbroke free to do as he pleased. So Henry left France with a fleet of ten ships and landed on the Yorkshire coast. And upon hearing this news, Richard fled to Wales and sought safety in some of Edward I's great Welsh castles. Now Henry already knew that his cousin was likely to flee and he managed to actually persuade him out of hiding with the promise that he'd only return to claim his inheritance and had no intention of threatening the crown itself. Obviously this was a lie, but it worked because Richard believed it. So as Richard came out of the gates of Flint Castle in north-east Wales, an ambush of Henry's men had laid in wait for him, and so they captured him. So the King of England was now his own cousin's prisoner. So Richard decided to abdicate his throne to God because he had no legitimate children, And Henry Bolingbroke took the empty throne for himself. And his claim was obviously a legitimate one. Like Richard, he could trace his descent directly from Henry III. So Richard was from Henry's eldest son, Edward, who was Edward I. And Bolingbroke from Henry III's second son, Edmund, Earl of Lancaster. So they both got a legitimate claim to the throne from Henry III. So in less than 12 weeks, Henry Bolingbroke had gone from landless exile in France to Henry IV, King of England. So however, even though Richard II had been deposed by law, he was still an anointed monarch, which Henry wasn't. And Henry knew this, and he also knew from Richard's last exile that he wasn't safe unless Richard was dead. So Henry didn't want blood in his hands, literally, for the murder of Richard, so instead he left him to starve to death in Pontefract Castle. And sometime around about St. Valentine's Day, 14th February 1400, Richard II died, a starved wreck of a man he could have been. So to sum it up really, Richard II should never have been king at the time he was. I mean, he shouldn't have been king anyway because his older brother Edward died. But then again, the same could easily be said for Henry II, the very first Plantagenet, he defied all odds to become king. And with Richard II's death in 1400, the Plantagenet dynasty had actually come to an end. So after almost 150 years of direct descendants from 1154 in Henry II 1399, in Richard II, it finally culminated with a king who had the attitude of a spoiled child. And in saying that, though, no other medieval European dynasty would ever have as much power as the Plantagenets during the high Middle Ages, and especially not into the 15th century. So over the course of the next 100 years following Richard II's death, there were seven kings in comparison to the eight Plantagenets in the 150 years. Seven kings over the next 100 years, that's compared to the eight Plantagenets over 150 And just for a little bit of context, out of those seven kings, three of them were murdered, one was killed on the battlefield, three died in the beds. So we've got a really, really rocky period and the 15th century is very turbulent. But if you look at it in one way, it's the most common thing in the 15th century, the most popular part of the 15th century is the Wars of the Roses, but that's a completely different story for another time. So I hope you enjoyed learning about the Plantagenet. So I hope you've enjoyed listening to these podcasts as well. I'd like to uh, thank a couple of people. Well, a few people. plenty of people I could thank. It'd take too much time. Uh, but thanks for your continued support and listening to them. I'll keep them coming up. And I hope everyone stays safe in this isolation that we're in in a minute. And hopefully you'll find a bit of time to listen to this podcast. And subscribe to the channel. Like the Facebook page. Send me an email if you want any requests. That's at historyin 20 at gmail.com. I've been told to have to give a shout out to one of the lads from work so Ethan hope you're listening to this one you enjoyed it mate so thanks very much everyone I'll see you on the next one cheers